Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. So one day I got home from work at night and um, everything I owned was in a cardboard box and it would turn into a, an end table for you know, whatever bedroom I had. I would flip it upside down and I would put my alarm clock in a little lamp my little boom box of tapes or books on it or whatever. Well, that box was in the front yard uh, when I got home with all my stuff in it. So I hid it in the woods and, um, you know, I, I had only been in town for a few months. I only knew one person. This was pre-cell phone days. And I went to his house. His name was Mark. I threw some pebbles at his bedroom window on the second floor, hoping the heck that he was home. I said, hey, man, you know, can I crash here? Um, just for the night, I got to figure things out tomorrow. And he asked his parents and they said yes. And tomorrow turned into a week and a week turned into a couple weeks. They ultimately offered a room to me for rent. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally, for most people, are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Shane, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks so much for having me. We've been looking forward to this for probably five years. I've been a big fan. <laughs> well, yeah. So you have been a longtime listener. And I think it's it's something that I absolutely love when one of our listeners sends me a story that makes me think, oh, yeah, this person should be a guest. And I remember reading your pitch and thinking, holy shit, this is crazy. There are so many layers to this, all of which we will get into. But um, having just read your new book, uh, I want to start with what I think is a very relevant question. And that is, where in the world did you grow up? And how did that end up impacting uh, the way your life and your career has turned out. Okay, yeah. So I mostly grew up in Western Massachusetts. Uh, I moved around a lot. Uh, my mother uh, was a single mom, uh, but then she was married, and then a single mom again. She had several marriages. Um, so we were, uh, you know, we were moving every year, every six months. I went to lots of elementary schools, lots of middle schools. Um, so you know, moving around that often. Um, you know, it, it teaches you a few things. And, and first is, you know, how to read people. Uh, you, you know, when you're the new kid in class, uh, you know, every six months, you don't have time to, to, to waste, you know what I mean? So you, you, I think you learn how to read people, um, you know, who, who's in my tribe and, and who's not, uh, probably mm -hmm. quicker than you would otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. So one one thing I wonder, you know, you mentioned your mom being a single mom, married and not. Uh, what has been the impact of the instability of father figures in your life, and how has that influenced your own role as a father? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I uh, I became homeless at fourteen and a half, uh, and then briefly I was back with my mother for a few months, and then homeless again, and then I was um, legally emancipated uh, around. Uh, 15 and a half or so, uh, which, which means that, um, I'm my own guardian, essentially I'm a minor, but I'm emancipated. So while I didn't have, uh, father figures, I mean, my, my own father was British. Um, I actually just met him for the first time a couple of years ago. Um, so I have, uh, 
kind of a relationship with him now um, that I never had in my entire life. Um, but I, I had a lot of friends and wherever I was, you know, I had friends and I knew, you know, their parents, uh, their fathers, um, you know, and then honestly, as a kid, as a teenager, you know, I, I was kind of a bookworm, you know, and I, I really got into lots of different authors and although they weren't my father figure, I, you know, read everything about them. I researched them. I wanted to be like them. Uh, even like Stephen King uh, <laughs> would have been in that crowd, you know, uh, as a teenager. So yeah, not having a father, um, I'm not sure that it impacted me, um, in a significant way necessarily because I found other figures, other mentors, other people to emulate, um, as a kid. I never, I never really felt like I, I was without something. I never felt at a loss, um, yeah. for whatever reason. What prompted, uh, the emancipation it's funny because i you know the only time i've ever heard about this is is just on tv when i see it in various like teeny bopper tv shows and stuff uh you what prompted that and, and how did that end up shaping the relationship you have with your mother yeah so i mean i have a relationship with my mother today um you know and she's obviously very she's older now um but you know she she had a tough time uh with her kids and uh, you know, I had lots of, uh, I had step siblings. I had half siblings. I had a sibling. I had a sibling that a half sibling that died. I had one that was given up for adoption. Um, you know, uh, you know, the, the situation was that she just wasn't capable of being, you know, uh, a mother at that time, you know, so all of my uh, older half siblings left before they were 16 or 17 years old, they went and moved away, uh, with their, uh, father's family. Um, but for me, um, that wasn't an option because I didn't know who my father was and I didn't know where he lived. So, um, yeah, it, it was, uh, at the time, you know, it, it probably couldn't be replicated anymore. I mean, the scenario today probably wouldn't exist. I probably would have been, um, put in, you know, some sort of foster care uh, under, you know, the auspices of the state or something. Um, but at that time, uh, I, th I just feel like it was a lot easier to fall through the cracks. So, you know, I ended up finding um, an apartment ultimately by the time I was 16 years old and I was in my fourth high school. Um, I did three high schools in a year and a half. Um but I found I finally found some stability. I started working full time uh, while I was in high school. High school certainly wasn't the priority. You know, my goal was to just get out of there um, because I had, you know, survival to think about. Um, but I never saw my mother for a long time, for years, you know, um, from probably 16 to 22, maybe 23. Um, I went quite the stretch. You know, but, you know, it's there's a theme in the Rocket Crew book about how people can change and how we have mm -hmm. to have patience with people. And we're not all designed like each other as much as we would think that we are and as much as we have in common. You know, people are very different. And, you know, with my mother, um, you know, I've gotten to know her better as an adult and as an older adult now. 
Um, and while there are certainly things that I, I can't forgive, um, I've come to a place, though, where I can appreciate her situation. Uh, I don't have to like it. Uh, and I, you know, but as an adult now, um, and as she's an older person, I, you know, I, I can understand some of the challenges that she was going through at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it makes me think that, you know, so many of us overlook context when we hear things from certain people. Like I, you know, I used to battle my parents on this, like the advice that they would give me about careers when I was growing up. And it took me a long time to come to terms with the fact that, wait a minute, you're giving me advice based on a very different context. You grew up in a circumstance in which your life outcomes were binary. It was poverty or security. So of course, you're not going to encourage me to pursue something that is, uh, you know, uncertain. And I think that we tend to, to really overlook that. Right. Um, So what I wonder also, um, I I don't want to come back to your father, but how did this end up impacting the relationships that you have with other people in your life? Um, You know, like significant others, your children, your friends, uh, you know, having had this experience with parents, because I I think there's no secret that parents play a pivotal role in our development. Yeah, I think, I think for me, and not to sound like uh, overly dramatic or cliche, but you know, as, as a teenager in that situation, when you're, when you're living in, you know, sleeping in laundromats and you're worrying about your safety, um, or your, your hunger all the time, and you're worried about tomorrow and the next day and the next day, you know, I think one thing for sure, um, was that I really appreciated my friendships like for me, you know, friends as, uh, you know, were, were, were like gold, you know, I, I never took them for granted, you know? Um, and I, and I think that's, that's true today. And it's been true, you know, in all of my various careers, whether I was at the white house, whether I was in corporate America or the military or in my own writing, uh, world, this, you know, this idea of really nurturing, uh, relationships and really appreciating those relationships and never taking them for granted. I, I, I think for me, that was a fuel as a teenager, you know, that got me through the day. And it sounds a little cliche again, but like it really did. Like, you know, having those, those really strong bonds, that strong, that, that, that it, it's like a, an elixir for bad times, you know? Mm, yeah. Tell me about the very first night you were homeless. Yeah. So, okay. Um, I don't know if it was the first night because what happened was it's, it, it, you know, it started sprinkling in from the time I was maybe 13 and, you know, you, you get kicked out and then I'd come back and, you know, you're too little, right? So you have to keep coming back. Um, but I think the, you know, the, one of the first experiences I can recall in its entirety is, you know, um, there was, you know, a big fight. Uh, there was a lot of violence, a lot of fighting, um, wherever we lived. Uh, and, you know, with, with my mother and her, uh, husband or boyfriend or, or whatever. And I was usually the referee. I was, you know, I, uh, for me as a kid, I, I always felt like I heard things louder, saw things clearer. I don't know if that was true or not, but you know, um, so I, I really had a, a low tolerance for uh, for violence, and and so I would inevitably try to break things up uh, as as 
best as I could, you know, as a kid, uh, especially 13 or 14. That's pretty tough. Um, but one night, you know, things were rougher than normal. And, um, you know, I got kicked out. But it was, you know, the winter time, and I was in shorts and it was cold. And, you know, uh, I think that was the you know, that was one of the first times I realized that, you know, this isn't, this isn't something that I can keep doing. You know, it's not, it's not normal. And it's just, um, you know, it's cruel. And, and it's just, it's just not right. And so that particular night, I literally called my best friend who lived in town. And, um, you know, I stayed over there. Um, But I ended up going back because at that time, you know, this is the mid 80s, early 80s. Um, you know, you didn't have the safety nets that you have today. You didn't have the, the social, uh, constructs, the ecosystem, you know, that, that exists today, um, to help kids out. So it wasn't until, um, I was about 15 and a half where, um, I got kicked out for the last time and, and didn't come back, you know, and, and really had to look forward into figuring things out, uh, on my own. And so originally I moved in with my older half sister, uh, but that only lasted a a couple months uh, because she was moving herself and she had uh, a baby and just wasn't, wasn't in a position of, of taking care of her younger, much younger half brother. After that, I couch surfed for a whole summer. I was 15, um, different friends' houses. And at the start of what should have been my junior year in high school, I ended up in a little college town where I rented a room um, with an old older woman. Uh, but that only lasted a few months because she had early um, onset Alzheimer's. So she, you know, she eventually uh, just became very unhealthy and I couldn't stay there. <laughs> so, so one day I, I, I got home from work at night and um, everything I owned was in a cardboard box and that cardboard box I would move around with me all the time and it would turn into a an end table for you know whatever bedroom I had I would flip it upside down and I would put my alarm clock and a little lamp my little boom box of tapes or books on it or whatever well that box was in the front yard uh, when I got home with all my stuff in it so I hid it in the woods and um you know, I, I had only been in town for a few months. I only knew one person. This was pre-cell phone days. And I went to his house. His name was Mark. And I threw some pebbles at his bedroom window on the second floor, hoping the heck that he was home. And he was. And said, hey, man, you know, can I crash here um, just for the night? I got to figure things out tomorrow. And he asked his parents and they said yes. And Tomorrow turned into a week and a week turned into a couple weeks and I was getting nowhere fast because I didn't have any resources or connections and they ultimately offered a room to me for rent. And so I ended up staying at that house and I rented a small room. Uh, I paid room and board. So they weren't like parents, but they were really, really nice people. They were very generous, um, very uh, patient, very tolerant for a kid with a huge chip on his shoulder. Mm. Wow. Uh, you, the other question I want to ask, and then I want to start digging deeper into this and kind of where it goes from here. 
is about that meeting with your father. Uh, what is that moment like to go and see somebody that you know deep down wasn't there? Yeah. You know, that should have been. That you see the messages from society all around you. Probably, I'm sure, saw friends whose fathers were role models in the way that you hoped a father would be. So what was that like the first time you met him? Yeah, it was just a couple of years ago. Um, it was a little surreal, but, um, you know, I, without even talking to him, I understood why he wasn't there. I mean, because I understood the environment that he was in, you know, um, you know, what I couldn't appreciate is how you could abandon your, your child, right? There's a difference between leaving a situation, but still having a connection, you know, with your child, that part I, I couldn't understand, but I, I really didn't need an explanation as to why he left. I probably would have left too. You know, it was, um, it was a tough, a tough environment to be in. Uh, but again, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in re really not judging people based on, you know, first glance, um, observations, right? Like you have to hear people's story. Uh, yeah. you know, for him, uh, you know, he, he apologized. He didn't really have anything to offer in terms of, you know, the way he, he severed, uh, you know, connections. It was kind of strange though, as a kid, because I knew who he was because I would always get, it was odd. I would always get a birthday card wherever I was. Um, same handwriting, <laughs> you know, and, and when I moved, I would send my new address, you know, back to him. Uh, so yeah, it was a little, it was a little surreal. And I, you know, we sat down and, and, um, I, I think if I had met him 10 years before or 20 or 30, mm -hmm. that, ex that initial experience would have been very different. I probably still would have had some pent up uh, you know, anger or whatever, but really it's not very productive, you know, having yeah. being, I was almost 50 years old, you know, my late forties, you know, coming into that scenario with a, an old man in his late seventies, bringing in all this anger and animosity really, I mean, what, what would have been the point, you know, yeah. he is a, he's a very kind, you know, older gentleman. Now he's British uh, you know, he's, he's got a, a whole new family. He loves his daughter, my half sister. Um, you know, and, and I'm glad I'm actually kind of glad that I waited until my forties before we could connect because yeah. I think I have a lot more patience now that I probably would not have had in my twenties or thirties. Yeah, it's funny. That reminds me of a conversation I was once having with my sister. You know, like my mom and I've had a complicated relationship and, you know, she's definitely pushed my buttons and, you know, we've said things to each other. And my sister once said, what are you going to do on her deathbed? Tell her all the things you thought were horrible. She's like, do you know how awful that would be to do to somebody? And I never, when I, when she put it that way, I realized I was like, yeah, what would be the point? Right. Like you said. Yeah. I mean, with my father, you know, we have a very topical relationship. I really don't know him that well. I've seen him actually twice now. Um, we've talked a few times on the phone. You know, he's very pleasant. But, you know, I, I you know, he's my father. I wouldn't call him dad, right? Yeah. No difference. Um, you know, uh, he's very pleasant. And I'm glad that I have a relationship with him. Um, I'm glad I got to know him. He, he, you know, he's, a, he's kind of a wild child in, a, in an 80-year-old body <laughs> today. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, yeah. Um, I think if I would, if if I had met him earlier in life, the experience would have been much 
much different. So, yeah. yeah. So, you know, one thing I wonder, it, it, when I hear you tell this story, you know, one of the things that we as Indian Americans or Indians often know is that no matter the circumstances of our lives, like our parents' door is always open. You know, like I remember when my, my best friend, his parents didn't come to his wedding. I was just like, dude, no matter what kind of fight I had with my parents, like that would never happen in my right. life. And he's, you know, and it's funny, he was a guest recently. You probably heard my, my conversation with Gareth. Yeah. And, you know, and I remember he came to my, my 42nd birthday at my parents' house and he said, you know what? He said, it's amazing that you still have this relationship with your parents. And he's like, you know, crushing it and making all this money. And yet he's like, but you have this, you know, it's like this grass is always greener on the other side thing. But what I wonder from your experience is, you know, you seem to have developed what, you know, appears to me from just hearing your story, a tremendous amount of resilience and self-reliance. Um, so what I wonder is, you know, Coming from the environment that you did, a lot of people become victims of that environment. You seem to have overcome it. Why do you think that is? Yeah, that's a great question. It really is. Um, I think there are a couple things at play. Uh, first, honestly, I was scared to death. Okay, so I, you know, I ran with the, you know, I ran with the wild ones uh, for sure, right? And basically did everything that they they did. Um, but I was usually the kid in the back going, Hey, uh, Hey guys, is this a good idea? <laughs> I'm not really sure this is a great idea, but we're going to do it anyway. Um, but honestly, I was, I was very fearful of, uh, screwing up really bad or, you know, injuring myself because I was worried that, you know, nobody was coming to get me. Right. So where most of my friends had at least one parent that, you know, would, would be there right? They, they had some kind of safety net. But when you don't have a safety net, when one doesn't exist, uh, you know, it, it's a very different situation. When you, when you know there is no safety net, you know, you can't help but be a little paranoid. Uh, and, and, you know, so I, I feel like fear was one of the, the reasons. The second reason was honestly stubbornness. Um, you know, I, I've spent over a decade in talent development, uh, working with uh, young people, middle-aged people, and older people become the best versions of themselves. And, you know, one of the things that, that fuels my passion for that kind of work is, you know, when I think about the billions of people on this earth, right, and the hundreds and hundreds of millions, if not billions of people who, who don't have opportunities and are in situations out of their control, especially kids, you know, they don't have resources, they don't have any structure, they don't have the right education, the right pedigree, the right, uh, you know, money, anything. Um, I think about the stories that will never be written. I think about the poems that will never be written out. I think about inventions that will never be invented, businesses, leaders that will never see I mean, it is a damn crime. And it's one thing that I've learned, you know, as, as a kid in that situation and being surrounded by lots of others who really didn't have safety nets, who lacked resources, structure, um, you know, their creativity, their innovation, their view will never be seen, will never be heard. You know, I mean, the odds are stacked against them. So for me as a kid, 
in that situation, not that I would articulate it this way then, I was stubborn and I was going to be damned if, if I was going to let somebody size me up and, and, and make a final impression of me based on who they thought I was, you know? And, and so I always tried to never let my circumstances, the things that were happening right in front of me at that moment, dictate the long view for me. Mm. And it was more of a stubbornness. I didn't have any sort of philosophical bent to it. I, I could, you know, it, it was just like, you know, you know, how dare you size me up? because of the kind of clothes that I'm wearing or the haircut that I have uh, or, you know, my funny vocabulary at the time. Um, how dare you size me up? So, you know, I was, I had my, I was snubbing, you know, the adult world around me and, and daring them to, to take a closer look because, you know, you really can't judge a book by its cover. And that, that stubbornness uh, you know, combined with a little bit of fear and to be quite honest, hope, you know, like having this sort of blind hope. I know it doesn't sound very scientific, but having a, a, a real genuine, robust sense of hope and that things will get better. Um, I think those three things were really what got me through that time and didn't just get me through um, in terms of survival, but really um, created, you know, kind of a framework that I could be successful and not just not just survive. There's a difference. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And eventually seeing success. And, and to be quite honest, you know, living without any structure, you know, not having to answer to anybody. It also allows you to be pretty damn innovative. And pretty creative, right? You're not. <laughs> I can relate. Yeah, you're not risk adverse, right? You're not. You have nothing. When you have nothing, you've got nothing to lose, right? So, you know, I mean, as a teenager, I, I mean, I did every job, and I, I was modeling. I was doing demolition, construction, pizza delivery, dishwasher. Um, I was perfectly terrible at most of those jobs. Um, <laughs> but, but you know what I mean when you don't have that kind of structure or expectations, it, it really allows you to invent yourself, reinvent yourself and create your own persona because you're not, you know, you're, you're not bound by anybody's expectations of who you, who you should be. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, wow. So walk me through how this leads to the White House, the military, and then we'll, we'll actually talk about Rocket Crew. I, you know, I'll, I'll, as you know, I'll tie it together in some weird twisted yeah. way. But uh, talk, me, talk to me of how, how you get to the White House and the military and what you did there. Okay, so um, after high school, so I ended up staying back a year because I, the, the three high schools in a year and a half, um, I had major credit transfer problems. So um, I repeated my sophomore year. So I spent five years in high school. After I graduated, um, I went to a community college. I actually got scholarship and um, I actually got an award, uh, a graduation um, award at, at, in high school for most improved academically. So, <laughs> and that came, I think it came with a $500 check. Uh, so I went to community college, but I was still working my butt off. Um, because while, you know, I had some grants and I had some scholarships and things like that, I still had to pay for books and rent and food and insurance and all that other stuff. So I was kind of, I was starting to burn out. I felt like I was in like a midlife crisis at 18 you know, 19 years old. Um, so I, and I didn't have health insurance and I didn't have dental insurance. So yeah, you can get grants and scholarships to go to college, but it doesn't pay for your insurance. 
Um, and I had some health issues at that point, because at that point, by the time I was 18 and 19, I, uh, I was lifting weights. I you know, was doing kickboxing uh, and I had some injuries and they were lasting a lot longer than they should have. So I ended up biting the bullet and I went into the Air Force Reserve. Um, and so that created a whole, whole different world. Now for the first time, I'm getting yelled at by people who don't know me. I'm supposed to do exactly what I'm told and when. And, uh, you know, I felt like I was 40 years old in basic training when I was only 21. Um, it, was, it was a little odd. But, you know, what I found was um, I didn't know much about the military. Uh, but what I found was, you know, that that institution was, you know, very, very welcoming to somebody like me. That no mm-hmm. preconceived ideas you know, um, when you, when you're coming into that, that environment, everyone's wearing the same uniform. Everyone has the same haircut. You know what I mean? Like there's no, you know, it's not like corporate America where you can look at someone's LinkedIn and see, Oh, they went to this college. They went to work at that company, you know? Um, and much to my own surprise, um, I, I became what was called a fast burner and I, I start, I really excelled. Um, as much as it would kill me to, you know, you know, uh, you know, take orders and, and do all those things, which I wasn't used to, um, it were really, um, there was a, there was a lot about that culture that, um, I, I did quite well in, uh, I promoted fast and, um, you know, I ended up uh, staying on active duty for about four or five years. Then, um, I came back into the reserves. And, uh, I got married, got married young, um, and we had a baby. So now I needed more income. So I ended up applying to this job in uh, corporate America and, and in a technical role, which I had no business being in because I had no, no academic background in that whatsoever, no practical IT experience at all. I, I kind of did a you know, Hail Mary um, and, and applied and I was interviewed and somehow I got the job. At the same time, I started caring a lot about politics. Now, this is in my mid-20s because uh, I, I was looking at politics as a way to affect social change, right? And, and specifically find opportunities to keep young people from falling through the cracks. I didn't know how else to try to make a difference. You know, this was in the mid nineties. Um, so, you know, I started knocking on some doors to see if I could get involved with some political campaigns and nobody would really see me because I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any connections. So there was this thing, I don't know if you've heard of it, Trini, it's called the World Wide web. You ever heard of that? <laughs> yeah. 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 So, so there's this whole www.whatever.com thing happening. It was a couple of years old. Um, one thing I didn't tell you is that in my teenage years, I, I, I did a fair amount of graffiti, um, some street art, and you know I was a cartoonist. I made comics and all kinds of stuff. So I thought, well, hey, you know what would be cool? Is if, what if I could make a website for somebody that's running for office, but not ask their permission to do it? Okay, so I'll make a website, which, you know, came easily to me, you know, self-taught web designer. Um, 
I'll make a, I'll stand up a website. I'll put all kinds of content onto it. And back then it was hard to, to make content. You know, I remember. Yeah. <laughs> right. You're doing a lot of scanning of uh, newspaper articles and magazine articles, right? And your, your content is like, you know, GIF files and JPEGs. Yeah. Uh, but then I'm going to, then I'll knock on the campaign headquarters door, introduce myself and say, Hey, you know, I'm Shane. I've made this website for your candidate. Do you want it? And in 1995, 96, they would inevitably say, well, that's pretty neat, but you know, we don't know anything about that. And that sounds expensive. So no, thanks. And I said, no, no, you don't understand. I'm giving you this website. You can have it. I just want to maintain the site and be a part of the, the, the campaign. And now all of a sudden, you know, a whole different tune, right? Oh, come on in. You know, so uh, all of a sudden, I found myself in these political circles where I was the youngest guy in the room by 20 years, at least. And what would happen is, you know, what started as just doing some web design and, and being a webmaster turned into creating content, too, which turned into speech writing, which turned into, you know, before I knew it, I was in my late 20s and I was doing campaign management, uh, communications director stuff and I worked on a, a presidential primary, a congressional campaign, state campaigns. Um, it was really cool. Um, all and all while having, you know, a baby still in the reserves. I still have a foot in corporate America and I'm doing this till, you know, two in the morning every day. Um, wow. So that was happening. And then um, enter 9-11. Okay, and after nine eleven, my reserve unit got um, activated. Uh, so I was part of uh, one of the biggest Air Force Reserve wings in in the world. Uh, so on Christmas Eve, um, after nine eleven, uh, I got put on active duty for about fourteen months. Okay, and so I went. You know, I I, I checked out of my corporate job. I I uh, by law I had to resign from any political associations. You can't be on active duty and also work in a um, political partisan uh, capacity. So now I'm done with corporate, I'm done with politics, and I'm wearing a uniform every day. Well, long story short, training, I appreciate your patience on this. Um, I'm a few months into this active duty role, and I'm at a retirement party for this guy that's retiring in the Air Force. And he said, hey, Shane, have you ever heard of the uh, the White House Communication Agency? I said, no, I have no idea what that is. He says, oh, you know, it's this, it's this, uh, this, you know, they handle all of the communications for the president, the vice president, the first lady, um, you know, everything. They do all the communications work. He's like, you should check them out with your background. You might be great there. I'm like, okay, thanks, whatever. So I, I didn't really think about it until a couple months later. So a couple months later, I'm on lunch, I'm at the base, and I pull up my Yahoo browser, right? Uh, maybe it was Yahoo, I'm not even sure. It might have been Netscape at the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I looked up the White House Communication Agency, and I was, I was a little intrigued by it. And what was happening at that time was um, folks from my unit were being sent all over the place, you know, um, at that time in support of things that were happening in Afghanistan. So either people were going overseas or they were going somewhere else um, domestically to support those efforts. There was a lot of uncertainty. So I made an inquiry and I said, listen, you know, it was a total cold call on an email and I introduced myself and I said, you know, 
here's a little bit about me. Here's my background. I'm on active duty. Um, I'm intrigued by this office. I'm just curious um, if there's any way that I can contribute to what's going on, but through the White House instead of at the local base that I was at. It was a total shot in the dark. You know, I had no business writing that email and I had no business of ever expecting anyone to respond. So about a week later, I got an email saying, you know, don't call us, we'll call you. Thanks for your interest, right? And then a week after that, I'm, I'm in a big blanket fort with my uh, two little kids. It's like nine o'clock at night and the phone rings. And it's the White House. And I'm like, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, am I getting crank called here? Like, what's going on? And uh, long story short, they, they needed a web designer and, and somebody that could do other things in, in a communications role. So between my web background and, you know, the little bit of political work that I did, um, they thought that I was a good fit. Mm. So, you know, two weeks later, I was, you know, I was off to the White House. And, you know, I, I, I couldn't believe it. You know, the first time I walked through, you know, the gate uh, by the West Wing, uh, you know, showed my credentials and, and I'm actually on the inside of the gate and I'm looking back, you know, at pedestrians. Uh, and, I'm, I, you know, I had to pinch myself every day that I was there. It was the most unbelievable opportunity, you know, um, the, the people I met, the you know, it, it was the people and the leadership that I was most impressed by. It was just absolutely amazing. Every day I pinched myself and every day I, I you know, I couldn't believe they would let somebody like me <laughs> through the doors um, and, and, and do the things that I did. I, I was creating apps for them. I, I redesigned their whole intranet site and then uh, I volunteered to do everything. I was away from my family the whole time I was there. So I'm like, listen, you know, throw work at me, bring it on. Mm. It was absolutely fantastic. Greatest experience. Wow. That raises so many questions. I mean, when you mentioned military and White House, obviously, you know, I had a very clear intent in mind as to why I wanted to have you talk about this. Um, you know, like I've been fortunate enough to have probably three or four conversations here on the podcast with people who've been in the military. I got to go and, and give a talk to uh, a bunch of former joint special operations guys to one of our listeners who, for, who runs a nonprofit in Montana where he trains retired special forces guys how to transition to civilian careers. Ah. And you have this very unusual blend of both the military background and the sort of political and communication background. So what I wonder is, what do you think that people like me who have had no direct experience with the military, but only experience it through what I see in the media through what I see in the news, misunderstand about the military. Because I can tell you, like, I think the thing that we, you know, for those of us who've never spent any time there, all we think is, why are you spending all our taxpayer money policing the world and yeah. letting citizens at home suffer? Um, that's like our first instinct. But I think that that's not entirely fair because that's my own bias as somebody who's never been in your role. I don't have the context that you do. What do you think people like me misunderstand about yeah, this? Yeah, that's such a good point, you know, and it's funny because whether I was in, you know, the military active duty or the reserves or corporate America or wherever, I always, I never introduced myself as a senior master sergeant in the Air Force. And nor have I ever introduced myself as a talent, you know, management director in corporate America. 
you know, I'm always Shane. And if anything, if I meet somebody for the first time, I introduce myself as a writer uh, first, right? And so the reason why I say that is, is I never really, I made a point um, to never kind of let any one thing, quote, own me, right? Like I'm not, because every institution is wildly imperfect, right? Whether it's the the military or corporate America or nonprofits, I mean, they're wildly imperfect. Um, when I think about, you know, my experience in the military, uh, combined 25 years of active duty and reserves, um, I think a, a few things come to mind. Um, first, every mission that the military goes on is sanctioned by civilian elected officials. <laughs> that is like the military doesn't come up with the missions. They need to prepare for the missions. They need to train for missions. They have to be ready uh, for the missions. But the, the military brass, the leadership, they don't sit in a room and say, okay, where's the next war? You know, where's the next war going to be? Or where's the next humanitarian relief going to happen? Right. It's, it's civilian elected officials. It's Congress. Right. So it's Congress and the president that chooses to use the military in the way that they see fit, right? Sometimes they're, you know, sometimes they're solving, uh, you know, you know, military problems, and sometimes they're solving diplomatic problems. And sometimes it's not always the right fit and it's not the right choice. But I think it's important to remind people, and I'm probably going to get into, and I'm sure a lot of people will have an opinion about this, but at the yeah. end of the day, I actually wrote an article and it was on NPR several years ago about this topic. At the end of the day, if we don't like what the military is doing, we have to look to our elected officials. We have to look to Congress and the president. They're the ones that fund them. They're the ones um, that give the orders. You know, the mm. military executes the orders by civilian leaders. Yeah. You know, Let's talk about the communications piece briefly. Yeah. Um you know, I mean, of all the roles, obviously, that is probably one of the most interesting ones you could have, given the current context of what we're dealing with. As somebody who has been in your position, when you watch what happens in our press briefings right now, yeah. when you watch the way this White House functions, um, what like what is your view on all of this? Because, you know, you said this was the kind of place where you wondered you know, how they could let somebody like you through the gates. Now it's become the kind of place where you probably would say, you know what, thanks, I'll stay outside of the gates, uh, at least in my opinion. Um, You know, and again, look, I mean, it's no secret that I'm liberal. I I swing left like I've not, you know, been uh, apologetic about that. But I also think it's important that we try to find common ground. And I I feel like we're getting further and further away from that um, between, you know, the fact that we have media that is very divisive, multiple versions of the facts. Uh, You know, we did our, I was just listening to uh, Cal Fussman, the interview that we did with him uh, that we aired on our Best Star Friday. He said, you know, back in the 60s, he said you had one source of truth and it was Walter Cronkite. And now you have like 700. Um, But you worked in a communications department of all things. And, you know, when you see a daily press briefing and what, like four press secretaries, uh, you know, like what, what do you make of all of this given your past and your background? Is it, you know, like, is it the chaos that we all perceive it to be? Well, I will say, you know, so first of all, I I was there in 2002. So a little time has, uh, has clicked by, but fundamentally it's probably very, very similar situation. And we had the internet, we had cell phones, we had all those things. Everything was, um, you know, 
uh, in place. I remember that that time, now this was post 9-11, so things were a little uh, crazy, but I remember being so impressed with how how these teams could keep up with the president and the, the vice president and the first lady. I, I was just blown away by the, the dedication and the commitment to mission. These were, you know, this, this team was apolitical. They transcended president. They weren't, they, you know, they weren't political appointees. I, I wasn't a political appointee, right? I, I was the help. Um, and I, I just remember the incredible pressure on the team, especially young people. And, and I couldn't believe how people could rise to the challenge and meet the challenge. And I, I'll never forget when one of the, I was a, I'm a history buff. And one of the first questions that I had for people when I was there was, you know, who, who do you like better? Um, you know, George Bush Jr. or Bill Clinton? I was always curious, like, because <laughs> most of the people that were there, um, had worked for both both presidents and and beyond, right? So I was just curious. I was a big West Wing fan at the time, you know, and I wanted. I was just curious. And it's funny; they always had two answers. Everybody had two answers. They say, "Well, you know, most people said that they liked Bill Clinton better than George Bush, but they'd rather work for George Bush." Wow. I thought that was interesting. And I'd be like, well, I don't understand. If you like Bill Clinton better, why wouldn't you want to work for Bill Clinton? He's, and, and inevitably, the answer would be, well, George Bush, you know, notwithstanding with, with George, notwithstanding some national emergency, some horrific thing that was going on, it was lights out after a certain amount of time, right? I mean, he would leave the West Wing and go back to the residence. Uh, you know, at whatever time it was, six o'clock at night or whatever, no news after six, whatever the time was. And so the people that were working for him could plan their lives around that. Right. Okay. Right. They could get their kids to softball practice. They could, you know, they, they can meet commitments. They could be on the school committee. They can, you know, they, because they could plan. They knew that for the most part, their day would start at this time and it would end at that time, notwithstanding some, you know, something crazy. But with Bill Clinton, you know, he, you know, he was very likable, super charismatic and all of those things, but he never shut it off. Right. He, <laughs> the day would never yeah. end. Right. So I, I never forget the first time I was in the West Wing and, and somebody was talking to me and they said, you did not want to be in the West Wing at eight o'clock at night because Bill Clinton could walk by your desk and it didn't matter who you were, didn't matter what role you played there was a sporting chance that he would sit down next to your desk and, and, and you'd end up in a three hour conversation, (laughs) you know, and and it would, you'd, you know, you'd go into these philosophical uh, rants and, and and they, they appreciated that. They liked it. So, you know, it was just hard to work around that. That's all, Yeah. you know, where with, with George Bush, it was a little more of a, a linear type of thing, you know, on off. Um, we're working or we're not working where with Clinton, you know, he was really never not working. So mm-hmm. I think about the, the 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 chaos of that the Clinton White House must have been like, and I think about today. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it must pale in comparison. You know, I mean, I don't know anybody there anymore. It's been you know a long, long time, but I have to imagine um, the teams that are supporting this administration they're working harder than ever to keep up. Yeah, you know. Wow. So. 
you know, I guess the final piece of this is like, you know, you look at that part of it. What do you make of the media landscape, you know, as somebody who worked in communications? I mean, I guess this is a, is a question I posed to Cal Fussman. What do you think is the responsibility of people in the media? I mean, I'm a media creator and obviously I'm having this conversation with through the lens of my bias towards the left. Like, yeah. I'm going to say that. Yeah. There's no question. I just the way I phrase the question makes it very obvious. But I know that I have listeners who don't think the same thing I do. I mean, I, I know for a fact because I was on the Glenn Beck show and that's where we got a lot of listeners. Right, so right. Uh, I, I guess, you know, like to me, I, I wonder what is the responsibility of media in today's society mm. as somebody who has worked in your role? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, boy, I, I mean, we could talk a lot just about that topic, but I, I don't know. For me, when I think about communications, I, I think one of the in, in, in today's world, I mean, when you think about the world that we're living in today, it's unprecedented, right? There's You can't look back at, in history, at any point in history and go, oh, you know, it's kind of like that time. You know, it's, yeah. there's, there's no time. And in, any time in the past that was similar uh, it really pales in comparison when you think about the exponential rate of change that's happening in front of us and the rate of that change and, and the, 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 the the avalanche of information and then the feeding of the machine, right? The 24 seven and the, you know, the, the Twitter verse and like the, it's this, you know, it, it, it's really, when you, when you take a step back, it's so challenging for people to really dig in and understand anything. Um, you know, our attention spans are shorter. We're multitasking. Um, we have, you know, dubious, uh, you know, sources of information. Uh, I, I, I think it's incredibly challenging. You know, I always kid around, we've, you know, no point in history have we had more access to more information at once. And at no point in history have we been less able to communicate with each other, you know, uh, <laughs> effectively, you know what I mean? Cause there's a difference between yeah. sending a quick text and effectively communicating or having a conversation for 15 minutes and not looking at your phone. So I think, I think one of just one of the things um, that we could do better is that is to have to exercise some sort of patience, either when we're writing the content and not being so quick to, 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 to develop things so quickly, but also, you know, face it at the end of the day, everything we, most everything we're talking about, in the media is about human beings and, and yeah. human beings are very nuanced. Yeah. There are really good people and really bad people. Uh, but for the most part, people are very nuanced and to understand those nuances and those different dimensions requires uh, a, a level of patience, which is very challenging in today's world. We don't get rewarded for doing things slow. We yeah. don't get rewarded for you know, doing things 20% longer than the person next to us. Right. Uh, so, but I, I think that's the opportunity that's in front of us is, is really taking a breath, having the patience when we're talking about other people and paying attention, you know, to those nuances, uh, you know, the, because not everybody is one dimensional as much as we like to make people um, out to be. I think doing that uh, as a as a content creator or somebody in the media is is probably more difficult um, than ever. But I think it's a worthwhile thing to try. 
So let's bring this full circle and talk about how it connects to Rocket Crew. First, for, for the people who don't know what Rocket Crew is, um, tell them what it is. But I, I think to me, as I was saying, when we started this conversation, the the thing that struck me most was the role that music played in all of this. And as somebody who has had a lifelong love affair with music, as somebody whose dad handed him a, the tape of Thriller and I played it until it stopped working, I think that, you know, looking at this soundtrack that you put together um, that kind of was woven in the book, just kind of it, that spoke to me on so many levels. So, like, how did that all come about? Uh, so how did how uh, how did Rocket Crew come about? Um, yeah, I mean, what is a Rocket Crew and, and how is it that sure. music played this pivotal role in your yeah. friendships? Yeah, so Rocket Crew is about four teenagers, their best friends, it takes place in the summer of 1984. They're 14 and 15 years old and they're living in Western Massachusetts. So about an, uh, a good hour and a half plus uh, from New York City. Uh, and they accidentally discover this brand new sound called rap music, right? Uh, which falls under the umbrella of hip hop, okay? Uh, they discover it and for a variety of reasons, it just resonates with them. Uh, they, they felt kind of like it was the, the new punk rock of the early 80s. Uh, you know, bands like, you know, Grandmaster, not bands, but artists like Grandmaster Flash and Curtis Blow. And like they were, they were singing songs, they were rapping songs about, you know, the world around them and, 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 you know, themes like never giving up and always have hope. And yeah, they were talking about the inner city, but for a variety of reasons, the, it just resonated with these kids, but and that's great. So practically overnight, these these four kids they they turn into wannabe b boys, uh, and the, the problem is is the town is kind of stuck in the past, and they're not ready uh, for this at all. So they stick out like sore thumbs, and uh, the some of the older uh, kids in the town um, really go out of their way uh, to make their life difficult. It's, it becomes a very confrontational thing um with the members of the rocket crew these four kids and these older kids in town um you know they weren't the these older kids weren't you know they weren't just driving by uh you know yelling out the window at them as they walked down the street with their boombox and their michael jackson red leather jacket on um they you know became very very confrontational so you know this book isn't about hip-hop but it's about you know, that is the backdrop. What the book is about is how difficult it is to find your identity as a young person or even as an older person and how difficult it is to, you know, dare to be different, right? To, you know, when the world around you wants you to conform, when the world around you rewards you for doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing, you know, these four kids, um, you know, they had it tough. And the more that the town pushed back on them, the more galvanized they became, the more, uh, more attitude, um, they had. So it's this, this story about the unbelievable power of those friendships that you had when you were young and how those friendships can get you through, you know, the worst adversity. And also, you know, how challenging it is for people to, to stand up and be different especially in the early 80s. I mean, hip hop was not, it was not on the radio. <clears throat> it wasn't even on the radio in, in major metropolitan areas and urban districts. Uh, you know, you really had to go out of your way to find this music. 
Um, so for, for these kids, it, um, you know, hip hop was something that made them stand out. It, it made them look different, sound different, be different. You know, they, they embraced it with everything that they had. Um, and the music, uh, you know, the original Rocket Crew manuscript, when I submitted it, had a, um, at the beginning of each chapter, had um, lyrics to a different song. Um, but then the publisher wasn't happy with that. So I had ended up having, <laughs> ended up having to, to pull, uh, pull that from it. Um, but yeah, um, the, the music really mattered. Uh, and at, at that time, what a lot of people don't realize with hip hop is, you know, old school hip hop that really came, um, you know, into its own in the mid to late seventies through the early eighties was a very, very different type of sound than it is today. And it was a very different type of sound than it, than it was in the nineties, even, um, it yeah. was very experimental. They were not looking back. They were looking forward, you know, um, stylistically, it was very different. The, you know, what they rapped about was very different. Yeah. You had your party songs, but you know, there was a lot of, um, incredibly inspirational, um, music coming out. You know, you think about Grandmaster Flash and the message you, you think about, you know, Curtis Blow, you know, lyrics like, you know, life's too short. We're all going to die. So go for the gusto, reach for the sky, you know, or, uh, you know, run DMC, you know, it's like that, you know, or, you know, they're talking about going to school, staying in school, um, that kind of thing. So, you know, the, the story is it, technically it's a novel and it's fiction, um, but it's really based on my best friends and my experiences when I was 14 and a half years old. So I've had the story in the back of my head for a very, very long time. Uh, you know, I was, I was talking to somebody recently. I never shared my background with people in corporate America or the military until probably less than 10 years ago, uh, right. you know? Uh, and so I had the story, I knew the characters, I knew the scenarios, I knew how it started. I kind of knew how it ended. Um, and although I was writing books and I was doing, uh, you know, screenplays and, uh, I never really thought about creating one story for the rocket crew. Um, and mostly because, I kind of detached myself from that world for decades, you know, when by the time I got into the military and I, you know, and then politics and corporate America in the nineties, I never really looked back at that world. I, it was always part of me. Yeah. Um, you know, being that B-boy, the break dancer, uh, it was always part of me, but I, I never really showed it, uh, for a variety of reasons, especially in corporate America at that time. Um, and then, you know, fast forward till 2010 and enter this crazy thing called Facebook. And I get a friend request and it's from my good buddy, Gene. And Gene was part of the Rocket Crew. And I hadn't seen Gene since 1987, 88. Because what happened in real life is things started getting very challenging. And I had to make a decision in 1987, 1988, as a 17-year-old, I had to choose one way or another way. And 
it's kind of a long story, but what happened was I disassociated myself with that whole world and with the rocket crew. And they went one way and I went another. And I hadn't seen him, heard from anybody since then, in 2010. So we, he contacts me through Facebook. We end up getting together and um, I was thrilled. And I went out and we had dinner and he got me up to speed on what happened with him and what happened with the other members of the rocket crew. And I kind of explained where I was coming from at the time. And, you know, we laughed and, and I'm about to leave Srini. And he, he says, oh man, he says, you can't go yet. And I'm like, well, why? He's like, hold on one second. So he leaves the room and he comes back and he's holding this cassette tape. And on the tape, it says 20 year tape, 1986. Don't listen until 2006. And this is in 2010. And I'm like, I can't believe you have that. So what happened was, is a friend of ours had died. And the night after he died, when we were kids, we made a 20 year tape. And we, we sat around a boom box in my friend's bedroom. And we talked about our friend and we talked about what life was like in 1986. And then we thought about what life would be like in the next 20 years. Who would marry Madonna first? You know, <laughs> uh, yeah. And, uh, and then we made a pact to get together in 2006, no matter what we were doing, we were going to all get together and listen to the tape. We made copies for everyone. We taped them up and, and, you know, the rest is history. Well, of course that never happened in 2006. Um, but we listened to it that night. So it's like two in the morning. I'm still at his house and we're listening to this 120 minute tape. And we're listening to these voices, you know, from so long ago, filled with hope and, you know, aspirational dreams and, you know, just, you know, listening to these innocent young voices. And, you know, we laughed and cried and laughed and cried and probably cried a little more than laughed. <clears throat> and then he handed me the tape. Because what had happened with him was, you know, he, he, had a, he had a pretty rough, pretty rough life. You know, he had a lot of challenges in his adult life and, you know, he, he had some really, really tough situations he had to get himself out of. Um, but he was on his way back. He struggled for a long, long, long time. Um, but when I was having dinner with him that night, you know, he was sober and he was excited about the future. And then we listened to that tape and he gave it to me and, you know, since 2010, I thought, you know, maybe the rocket crew is worth telling people about. Maybe, maybe those kids had something unique. Maybe there was, you know, something that the world's going to benefit from by listening to this story. Um, so long story short, I started writing the rocket crew in like 2017. It started as some short stories and then turned into a couple short indie screenplays. And then I got serious about it in, in 2019 and, you know, it, it was published. The paperback came out in February of this year and the audio book um, just came out a couple months ago. Amazing. Um, well, I think that makes a, a perfect setup for my final question, which I know you've heard me ask. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something <laughs> unmistakable? <laughs> I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> um, what makes somebody? Let's see, that's such a, you know, when you ask me that, I think about all of your other terrific guests 
and their answers. And I'm thinking, boy, am I going to say something that somebody else has said? Um, when I think of somebody who's creative, I think of somebody who will be creative no matter what the circumstances are. Okay, whether you're in the military or you're in corporate America or you're in a rock band you know, or a punk band or whatever, I think a truly authentically creative person is someone who will find ways to be creative no matter what is happening in their life. You know, it, it's like when I'm talking to people, you know, and they say, well, Shane, you know, I want to I want to write a book, but I don't know what, you know, I know I can write a book. I'm an author or whatever, but I've never written a novel. I don't know what to write about. You know, what what do you think I should do? And I said, you know, one of the things I always say is, you know, if, if you could climb to the top of the Empire State Building, right, and had the biggest badass microphone and speaker system going and you had the attention of every New Yorker for an hour and you could tell them a story. You have one shot. What would it be? Don't think. Don't think too long. Just what? What would the story be? What would you shout down from the top of the Empire State Building, down to millions of New Yorkers who gave you their undivided attention for an hour? And whatever it is, whatever it is that comes to mind, that's the thing you should be writing about because you you aren't going to struggle with that. You're whatever that thing is is probably burning a hole in your soul. So the thing that you should be writing about is the thing that's burning a hole in your soul. It's the thing that you, you, uh, you know, you dream about. It's the thing that you feel guilty about not doing at the end of a long day, right? So I think truly creative people are those people that have a handful of those kinds of things in their gut, in their soul. You know, they have a handful of projects, books, things that they have to get out into the universe no matter what. And no matter what their circumstances are, no matter how busy their day is, you know, they're going to find a way to get it out into the universe. So I, 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 for me, when I think about, you know, the answer to your, your, your question is, is, you know, that that's what comes to mind. It's someone that will always find a way to get their creativity out into the universe. Mm. Amazing. Um, this has been absolutely brilliant as I expected it would be. And, uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom and your insights with us. Where can people find out more about you, your book and everything else that you're up to? Yeah. So I'm on Twitter at Shane Robitaille, um, S H A N E R O B I T A I L L E. Um, I used to be on Facebook, but, um, that's kind of a digital wasteland for, uh, creativity. So I, I put most of the stuff out on, on Twitter. Um, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter and, and I, I want to thank you again, cause I'm still pinching myself that I'm actually talking to you. Um, it's, it's been such a thrill, um, because like I said, before you hit record, you know, you've been the, uh, the voice in my headphones at the gym and doing laundry and picking up the kids and, you know, for probably four or five years anyway. So, um, it's, it's really a thrill, uh, to chat with you. Likewise. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.